Morning, everyone. You know, uh, our dear sister's prayer this morning really touched me. I'm reminded it's active, it's a double-edged sword, and it's very powerful. So as we go into it, we, we ought to go in with a deep sense of reverence, respect, and trembling. It's a double-edged sword, Leo. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing how the word is still relevant today. We're taught to be countercultural. We swim against the tide. That's what Christians are. And, and I get it. In seasons like this, as Pastor said, it's a difficult challenge. On the one hand, we have, look, it's a fantastic opportunity to evangelize. We have those folk who come along for Christmas weddings and funerals. And their ear is open to at least some form of message at this time of year. So we shouldn't completely put it aside as of Satan. On the other side, I was tempted, pastors reined me in, to slaughter Santa tonight. Chop a few reindeers up in front of you. And burn up that Christmas tree at the back. I was tempted. But pastor in his wisdom has said, look, I've told them the pagan origins of all things that we see. And look, just, just on the Christmas tree alone, because it was there last night as well, and, and it did hinder me. Perhaps it shouldn't have as much as so. But, you know, there is a time for grace and mercy. There is a time for patience. And we pray for a lot of people who have issues and we stay long-suffering. But there's also a line which Christ knew very well. In that temple, when he saw his father's house being desecrated, it wasn't mercy or compassion you saw there. He built a whip right then and there. So there is that side. There's that side where on your journey, as you grow closer and more near the fire, you realize these things have to go from my life. And it is difficult. You know, (laughs) the enemy was never going to have us in this dispensation have a statue of Baal or a golden calf in your living room. He's he's more shrewd than that. He's never going to do that. It had to be something else that the society and culture of its time would deem as harmless. But I'm going to let you guys... (laughs) Go and research what the Christmas tree is today. Today's message is not about that, because I think we're in a day and age where you can do your own research. You can find the origins of these things and decide yourself the place for these things. Today, I want to discuss, you know, we're going to get gifts. We get presents. Yes, please. Yes, please. (laughs) We're not going to say no, are we? Oh, it's, it's Christmas and I'm a Christian, so you can put your present... I don't see that. That doesn't happen. So we're going to get presents. And people exchange presents. And all year round. Well, there you go. So Santa must be omniscient, right? If he knows you've been good all year round. And by the way, he... Uh, no, it's good you do that. Father Christmas has the uh, ability to know if you've been naughty or nice, Richard which stems of omniscience. 
He can also, by the way, drop a present in every chimney, in every house around the world, which is omnipresent. He also gives you gifts based on your works. Whether you've been a good or bad boy or girl is how you get presents. I hope you're tying in the complete counterfeit nature between Father Christmas and our Father in Heaven. And there as we zoom into that nativity scene, let's go there for a second in our minds. And it is a beautiful moment in eternity. Of that there is no doubt. The Son of God, incarnate, in flesh, in swaddling clothes, in a manger. Oh, that is foundational. Beautiful. And the three wise men they came and gave... But what was the most profound gift in that nativity scene? It wasn't what the three men had brought. It's what God had given. That's the thought that struck my mind while I was praising just then. The gift that we ought to be focusing on is not the gold, frankincense or myrrh, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And what religion doesn't seem to see is it's not the, 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 the physical presence, it's the person. Amen? And we ought to be thankful. Today's message is about thankfulness. For those who were at Do You Know Him, you'll have to bear with me, you're going to go through it again. We're going to go in more depth, but it's about thankfulness. It's about thanking for the gift. That's our message today. Now that gift, let's move our minds away from being programmed to being material objects, to being the person of Christ, but also in your life. You know, when I look at Karishma every time, I realize that's a gift from him to me. I met her in a, in a bar in Hounslow many, many years ago. We were in the world and if the enemy had his way, he had that meeting designed for other purposes. But as I go through the journey now and I see a woman of virtue who does, to me, make me feel like I'm wearing a crown, as Proverbs 12:4 says, I realize, what a gift you've given me. And that person in my life, I ought to be welling up with thankfulness. You have the same in yours. You have that person, Russell. He's not here now, we pray for him, but you know, every one of you have that person in your life which is a gift from the Almighty Father, the maker of heaven and earth, whose gift wrapped that present for you, your parents. And do we thank them enough? Are we thankful enough? Or has that word become a throwaway word? Thanks. So today... I want us to really uh, go into understanding the uh, thankfulness and the meaning of thankfulness. Our scripture for today is Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. I'm going to read this. Once over, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into the, the background and go deep into this word. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 
ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were healed and cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Father, we give you all the glory. Lord, we need you in here. Oh, we need you, Father. I need you more than ever. You are our righteousness. You are our teacher. Spirit of a living God, as our sister prayed earlier, this is still a double-edged sword today. So, Father, come and lay your heavy hand upon someone today, Lord, that when they leave this room, Father, they didn't leave the way they came in, but they came with a new conviction that you are the one we should be thankful for. And let our hearts from that thanksgiving have an outpouring of praise towards you, Father. Once again, understanding who you are, how much it cost. In Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt this was an actual event. No doubt. But the way it's described by the author, it's also a parable enacted. You see, Jesus wanted his disciples to learn a very fundamental lesson in discipleship. He also wanted us today to learn the same lessons critical to discipleship from this passage. So in order to fully understand that, we need to understand the context, the background, geographically where is this happening and what's the importance of that. So he was on his way to Jerusalem and he traveled along the border Verse 11 says, between and south of Galilee. Getting closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer. Since Luke 6, he's like an arrow to a bullseye going to the cross and moving closer to Jerusalem. And here Jesus is traveling, like I said, in the extremity of the province of Galilee. The north area specifically has a lot of Samaritans. Why is the storyteller telling us this? Well, it's a racially mixed area. Where I can relate to maybe somewhere like Southall. As racially mixed as it's going to get. But why is the author saying this? Well, later on, we have the punchline. was a Samaritan. Or a foreigner. Our land right now, as we hear some right-wing extremists say, full of foreigners. We ought to not just look down upon these people. We as Christians don't look at non-Christians as Samaritans. So all throughout the Gospels, it's the Samaritan that Christ blesses. Now why is this important? Racially mixed area, he was a Samaritan, so we understand the geography. Now we need to understand this disease, leprosy. 
We don't fully understand it today because in terms of a biblical disease, the closest thing we have to us is something called Hansen's disease. But that still doesn't surmise what leprosy would have been. It would have been an amalgamation of all types of skin diseases, but peaking at the very most putrid part, which is literally your fingers and digits and toes and nose falling off with a horrible smell around you. And I want us to image this and bring you to your mind an image of just how physically vile it would have been. Once a person caught it, it was considered incurable. They were banned from society. Just imagine if you were banned from society. What are the costs and consequences of that? There were certain things you had to do. If you had this disease, you had to wear torn clothing. You had to keep your hair unkept. And you had to even cover the lower part of your face. You'd have walked around like this. And from underneath that cover, you would have had to scream, unclean, unclean, unclean. You know, we're we're full of a society of trying to conform to everybody. Can you imagine having to do that? In the human nature, you want to be part of society. You don't want to be ostracized in any way. And here, this disease forces you to shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And as long as he has the infection, he must remain outside. Let's get a biblical glimpse of the vileness of this disease. If I can ask, Pastor, can you read Leviticus 13, verse 45 and 46? That's Leviticus 13. No worries, I'll read it. No problem, hold on one sec. 13, I've got it right here guys. So Leviticus 13, we're going to read from Leviticus 13 to get an understanding of this disease. Biblically, verses 45 and 46. Now, the leper on whom the sore is, the sore, his clothes shall be torn, his head bare, and he shall cover his moustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Verse 46, he shall be unclean all the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. By the way, if ever you were deemed to be cured, you have to go to the priest and have a seal of approval that it's been cured. And that's also in Leviticus, I can provide references But this loathing was directed at the lepers, not merely as a physical disease. You see, they were also seen as internally unclean. Internally carrying an infectious disease that is incurable. I'm using these words intentionally. In fact, if you were to touch a leper as a Jew, you were told as bad as touching a dead person. In a sense, God's disfavor. I hope you're making the comparisons with sin. An internal 
incurable disease. They were told they could attend the synagogue, but they had to be first in and they had to be last out. And here's another condition. There has to be six feet difference between them and any other man or woman. Six feet, or in the Bible, four cubits must be kept between you and a leper. To the rabbis, curing a leper was as difficult as raising a man from the dead. In all of biblical history, to that point, only two people had been cured of this disease. Miriam, who had leprosy for seven days as a punishment for speaking against the leadership of Moses. For your reference, that's Numbers chapter 12, verses 9 to 15. Those who are making notes, please read that when you get home. Miriam opposed the leadership of Moses. My message today isn't about respecting our leaders, but that certainly ought to have a memory point for you for later on. We don't come up against those who God has anointed or servants he's put in place to lead us. Miriam found out the hard way and so did a man called Naman. Do you remember him? He was instructed by the prophet Elijah to go and dip himself seven times. There's a lot of nodding heads and he was a heathen from Damascus, a general in the army of Aram. And your reference is 2 Kings chapter 5. But he obeyed Elijah, by the way. And he went ahead and uh, got his... uh, God is healing. But since then, for 700 years, no one has been able to deal with this disease. They knew that in fact, if ever that time came, if ever an age came where someone was doing this, it was a messianic age. They knew that the rabbis were fully aware of this. And your reference for that is Luke 7, verse 22, when the disciples of John the Baptist were sent out to check with Jesus himself, the signs. So Luke seven twenty two is he, you know, and Jesus turns and says to them, go back and say, the blind are seeing lepers. He's telling them, go tell John, the messianic age has arrived. I want us to go to, very briefly, Luke 5, 12 to 16. Because I want to see the first confrontation with leprosy before we do our study for today. Luke chapter 5 verses 12 to 16. We see Christ coming face to face with leprosy. Verse 12 to 16. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord... If you are willing, you can make me clean. I love this man's faith. Then he put out his hand and touched him. Just one touch from the king, folk. Just one touch from the king. Touched him saying, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest. And make an offering of your cleansing as a testimony to them. Just as Moses commanded However, the report went around concerning him all the more and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. 
the ramifications of Jesus healing this set the platform for crowds and crowds. You're beginning to understand that leprosy would have been the gateway to a lot of people realizing the messianic age could be here. Could be here. And those who say Jesus came to abolish what was written in the Old Testament, he's saying now go and do what it says in Leviticus 14 and 13. Go and make yourself known to the priest. Get the seal. But he also says, make an offering. Give a gift. As an expression of your thankfulness. Now, let's go into the, uh, the passage for today, which is uh, back to chapter 17. And it says in verse 12, as he was going into the villages, ten men had leprosy met him. Notice two things here. Jesus is outside the village. Take note of that. And he meets a group of lepers. They were outsized because they were ostracized. They were outside as a group because when your family rejects you, you are forced to have a new family. Who carry this disease? So they hang about together. They were always crying out from the outskirts of the village to the villagers who had compassion, food, clothing, or pity. Have pity on us. They probably didn't have any livestock. They didn't own anything anymore. And they're trying to obtain what's needed from any member of society that was compassionate enough. So they depended on others. Deemed as the untouchables. But they stood there in verse 12 and 13 at a distance and called out in a loud voice. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. The loud. This verse, I want us to focus on the loud for a second. This wasn't a feeble, quiet call out. And when we cry out to the Lord, remember, it's a loud cry. Because we're in pain. We're often needing something that needs deliverance. It needs resolving. It might be our children that need saving. But are we crying out loudly? Let's take our children, for example. Crying out that the Lord remembers mercy in his upcoming wrath. We ought to be like these. We ought to be like these ten. Now, they didn't cry, Master, heal us. They said, have pity on us. And the form of dress is master, by the way, in the Greek, epistatis, epistates, master. Used in secular Greek from various officials like teachers and leaders. It's not actually the term for rabbi. Rabbi is didislaki, which is teacher and rabbi. In this particular instance, it's teacher, leader, have pity on us. A familiar cry. One they would have, as I said earlier, cried out to the villagers and would have fell easily from their lips. But they knew this man had a reputation for compassion. Do people in your life know that you're a man or a woman of compassion? 
Do they know that they can come to you? I hope so. I hope we, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, are known amongst our friends and peers as people of compassion, ready to house, clothe, and feed. Well, they knew Christ was a man of compassion. And the word pity here, elio, E-L-W-O. Why am I saying that? It is for us to have the gravity of the sense of, have deep concern for me, Master. Consider me with intensity right now, Master. Elio points to, make me top of your agenda right now. Not just pity. That's why we go to these languages, to understand the full depth of the meaning. Please don't ignore me. Consider me now with utmost of intensity and priority. Have mercy on me, is what this word is pointing to. And be greatly concerned to me. Have, have compassion. They don't ask for healing. They ask so that he might maybe give them food, clothing, or shelter, or whatever he decides to offer. But because he had compassion, the text doesn't tell us they ask for healing. When he saw them, he said, verse 14, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Go show yourself. In fact, can I borrow you boys? James, Michael, in fact, I'll bring Raymond up as well actually because he's laughing so much. Can I bring you guys up here for a second? thought you got away with it today, didn't you? <laughs> it's important for us to understand on their way. You know, a band of men... Over here, guys, over here. I didn't think I'd feel short ever in life, but it's clearly happened. Okay, come. <laughs> so here we are, a band of men. Maybe they had hands around each other. Maybe they didn't, Michael, but today they do. All right? Okay. <laughs> and they're walking on their way after having master say, look, go and show yourselves. And they're walking like this. And at some point, one of them would have looked at them and said, Hang on a minute, mate. You're back to normal. Can, can you imagine that reaction? Now, he would have gone to him and looked at him and said, Look, you look pretty normal. <laughs> <laughs> You're back to, but I'm hoping with a bit more enthusiasm, right? These guys have carried an, oh, you guys can go, oh. an incurable disease. It would have, cheers, guys. They are carrying something for all their life, and it would be. And then he would have checked himself. This, oh my goodness, we're cured. We, this is amazing. This is incredible. I didn't expect this. I just obeyed. And the reason why I want us to enact that is because it's important for us to understand that there is an epiphany moment in their journey. There is an epiphany moment in their journey. Now, the significance of the priests we know about, Jesus' instruction, is because he knows only the priests can deem them fit to re-enter society. Your reference for that is Leviticus 14. Jesus didn't say they are healed, but he certainly would have implied it. Which is why they went straight with obedience. Notice none of them laughed at him. None of them mocked him. 
in the English we don't really have the right construct to use the tense that's required, not as the past or the present, but in between. So in between, the Greek is pointing towards during the journey, this would have been literally cleansed at a single point of time. Luckily, they didn't laugh at him. They obeyed him. Belief is not enough. I'll say it again. Belief is not enough, friends and family. They had faith with works. James 2.17, faith without works is dead. Belief, remember we taught on this before, John 8, 8.32, believe, you believe well, demons believe and tremble. Come and be my disciple now. You need to abide in my word to be my disciple. Belief is not enough. Time and time we see that. Here we have their belief and now they obey and they walk the walk. Faith itself cannot exist in a vacuum is what's written in my notes here. Cannot. It's exhibited in what we actually do. Evidence of your faith. Examine yourselves right now. What is the evidence of your faith in Jesus Christ? Because these lepers believe, they begin to obey. They walk to the village where the priests were. We're going to go to verse 15 here because we enacted it. And there's this moment when one of them realizes and points as the boys just showed with absolute glee. And one of them, verse 15 says, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. There's a loud voice when we were crying and when we need God. How many of us come back and cry praise in a loud voice when he delivers? Well, we know the ratio. The double-edged sword tells us it's one in ten. Are you that one? The word of God, the Logos, tells me it's one in ten. As loudly as he cried, have pity on me, he comes back and cries, I praise you. I praise you. For I was once a leper, and now I'm healed. And the next part of the verse tells us, my goodness. <sighs> Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. There's our word for today. Thanked him. We use the word thanked and we don't fully understand the gravity of that word. The words and synonyms that come to your head if you Google it is appreciation, gratitude, thanks. 
But when we go to the Greek word, it's eucharistio. It's where we get the word eucharist, by the way. The eucharistio, which gives it a little bit more depth. And it says to bear the cost in mind. That's all it says. Yada in Hebrew and toda. Yada, root meaning is yud, the hand, by the way, praise. That's connection there. But yada and toda points to an absolute, this is the meaning of thank you in Hebrew, absolute understanding and revelation of how much the giver cost to give me this gift. So when pastor gives me a gift, oh, so he took time out, firstly, from his busy schedule. He went to the high street. It may have been raining. He still went to the high street, took out his wallet, which would have been hard-earned money, paid the kiosk, came back with the present, thinking of me all that while. He came and put it on his desk. Didn't stop there. He wrapped up this present. He didn't stop there. He wrote a card. And the card, he put out his heartfelt emotion on that card. He then sticks the card on top of the present, comes back to me and... Do we think of all these things when someone hands us something? <laughs> We've become, me included. Thanks, mate. <laughs> and the danger of not understanding the word thankfulness echoes through eternity when you don't understand what Jesus did here for the leper. <laughs> what he did on the cross for me and you. And we're going to come here, we're going to shift now, so we can make the parallels between leprosy and sin, iniquity and transgression. We also were once carrying an incurable disease. We also were part of what is known as the world. And yeah, here this man come running back to the feet of Christ. I'm challenging us today, do we all every night? Come running back. I once was lost, I once was one. You found me, and every night I'm going to be at your feet, Father. I'm going to be at your feet, and I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you. I'm not going to let anybody else stop me from praising you, because I was once a sinner. You saved me. This is the parallel we need to make today. This one man, this one man came back. Oh, and he was praising God. And he threw himself. And the punchline is, he was a Samaritan. From this, we can make a presumption that the other nine were Jews. Aware of the scripture. We don't get told where they went. We can have a few guesses. I would actually think they went straight to the priest, definitely, to get their seal. Because to get back into society, you need to have... So that would have been... Some would have gone after that to their family. Right? Some would have probably gone back to the bars and all the places they couldn't go to before. Itching to go there. Pardon the pun. They weren't itching anymore. (laughs) The bad joke. But that's probably where they went. But here's our guy. He comes back. And in the Greek, he doxazo his praise. He doxazo. And why am I saying doxazo? It's to extol. It's to clothe with glory. It's to understand that there isn't even anything I can do. So all I have, I give to you. You see, from the cup of thanksgiving, brims up and overflows into doxazo praise. 
See how important it is to understand thanks now? <laughs> From that cup comes true praise. Our guy comes back and honors Christ in recognition and gives him fame and wants to make him renowned and wants to honor him, wants to treat him with prestige. And notice it's a loud voice. Verse 17, the unthankful nine. Jesus asks three questions, guys. Three questions in these verses. Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God? Except this foreigner. Pause. All-knowing being, asking questions again. Surely, an element of rhetorical questioning here. He knows. He knows all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There is nothing that goes past him, even your secret sin. Oh, you can't hide anything. That is why these moments of intimacy with Christ are so beautiful for me. Because, you know, like every one of us here, we can put masks on now even. We can do it in work. We can do it with our friends. We can do it with our family even. And they get to see a little bit more of the mask off than most. But in society, we get to put a mask on. But I tell you, if you're in front of an all-knowing, omniscient being, there is no secret sin that you can hide from him. And I love that moment in my life because you can't lie. There's no point. This, you just can't. And I implore you guys, this is where we ought to have our first ministry. If you want to talk about ministry and all of these things, it's there at his feet every night and every morning. A sanctioned off piece of time that no one should get in the way of. No one, not your family member, not your friends, not TV, nothing. And Jesus asked the question, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? This is for the disciples now to really hear. He wants them this is for impact. He's asking these questions so that they remember this even when he's gone. Look at the ratio, disciples. Were there not ten? Only one of them has come back to give praise not to a master. He doesn't use the term leader. He uses the term God. <laughs> if anyone ever asks me, where does Jesus imply he's God? Here's another one. Except this foreigner, allogenes. Allogenes is the Greek translation for foreigner or allos, which means other. The surprise here is that this one man is a non-Jew. You see, by large, the the Jews had rejected the Son of God. And he needed them to understand this message. They were to preach to the Gentiles. They were going to go do that. But they were also being told here, by and large, and in fact the parable of the tenants tells you that as well. John's Gospel begins with a sad observation. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Oh, let me read that verse again, guys. Let me, read, let me just tell you who you are today in this season. Let me tell you your identity. Let me remind you, saints, of your identity. If somebody says anything, happy Easter, happy Christmas, just remember your identity. Hold on firm to your identity because John is telling you his, our identity here. John 1 verses 11 to 12. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Don't think Jews, you bad group of people, you Jews. would Listen, take it to this dispensation. Us, where Jesus comes down in that moment in your prayer life and he's there. You say you're praying every day at 10.30 and he's there. And guess what? We're not. Don't always be thinking, bad group of Jews who reject. Think about yourselves in your prayer life. How often has Jesus been there waiting at the end of that? I said a conference call another day in an analogy. And the conference call is left hanging by the other person. How often has that happened? And he came for his own. And I'm going to close with obviously the final verse. The account concludes with a departing blessing. Verse 19. Then he said to them, to him rather, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Hang on a minute. Was he not healed en route? Well, we saw the other guy's reaction. We, he was healed en route to the... He was healed, he turned around, he's come back, and yet Jesus says here, arise now, your faith has made you. This is why it's important to go into the Greek element of the author's words here. The words he used when he says, your faith has made thee whole, in the Greek is sozo, S-O-Z-O, S-O-Z-O, where we get the word saved. Let me, if it hasn't hit home, let me translate this to you. Yes, amen. I thought I'd get more hallelujahs. Look, you see, the others got healed, but you guys came back and you want me the healer. You want to call me savior, sozo. You want to call me deliverer. You want to come to my feet. The others got healed, but they didn't want the healer. You are the one person that's come running back to me and has said to me, oh, so I tell you what, arise. You have your salvation as well as your healing. Far too often we want healing and we don't want salvation, which is the relationship with Jesus Christ. The healing rather than the healer. But there's our guy coming back. And, and what about us? Just like that, we ought to be every night and every morning running back to the feet of Jesus Christ. You're my savior. You're my deliverer. You healed me from my sins and my iniquities. And no matter what I go through now, you are still my healer. You are still my deliverer. I will still praise you with everything I have because I understand the cost that is the free gift that was wrapped in swaddling cost in a manger. And in that gift, I obtain paradise. I understand the cost. 
We won't fully understand the cost until we get to that side of glory. But in your house, there is a book called the Word of Life. The sword that we talked about that gives you constant revelation, glimpses inch by inch about the mysteries of how much it costs. Exactly how much it costs the Father to see His Son on the cross. How much it costs the Son. Take the cup. See, we have to fully get the depth of that before we thank Him and thank the Elohim for what happened in Golgotha. We have to. And, and, and some, of the, some of it, by the way, I call it garden to garden. I call it the broken-hearted cry of a creator. I've talked about it here when he says, Adam, where are you, Adam? Broken-hearted. I made you to fellowship. I'm broken. And guess what? The same broken-hearted cry in another garden in Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane. Abba, take this cup away from me. Oh, it's the same voice. It's the same cry. It's the same cry. Until then, he championed everything. He walked on water. He healed lepers. He opened the eyes of blind. He healed those who wanted to be healed. But here comes this moment where Jesus Christ says, if there is any other way, Abba, take this cup away from me. And then comes the most painful, and for us the most convicting, yet not my will. Be yours be done. You see, the cup is the wrath of his father, which is undeserved to him. The cup is coming to his mouth. I don't deserve this. I'll be separated from you. That's why he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabatani. My God, my God, you forsake me. Because he knows to drink means he's cut off for the first time in eternity. The triunity of the Elohim is cut off. Take this cup away from me. My relationship with you is everything that I have. Yet I'll do this, I'll do this for Koshi, I'll do this for Krishna, I'll do it for Raymond, I'll do it for Tom, I'll do it for Richard, I'll do it for all of these guys. I'll do it if it's your will. I'll drink it. I'll drink it to its uttermost dread. And not one drop remained. When we see that baby in the nativity scene, understand that the baby grew up. Understand that the baby didn't just stay as a baby. He grew up. And he went on a cross. And he obeyed the Father. And in closing, the Samaritan receives deeper salvation. His faith has prompted him to return to the feet of Jesus in thanks. And that personal contact and that personal submission signifies soul healing. Just more deeper than skin disease. Shall we close our eyes as we submit this to our Lord?